From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. I'm always, always carrying a camera. I'm actually charging the Are camera you? here as we speak. It, it goes everywhere with me. It's part of my, it's my buddy now. It's part of my life. So. Girls do seem to be viewing their time online more negatively than boys. And there are feelings of jealousy, for example, feelings of being left out, uh, of anxiety, uh, inadequacy. And it is, it's really concerning. I mean, the key thing about tea bags is that even just a humble tea bag in itself is almost an amazing invention. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, farming for the camera, the kids that think they spend too much time online, and is this the end for the pyramid-shaped tea bag? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's unapologetically square-shaped. On this morning's nine o'clock show, Oliver Callan began his musings on the stories making the headlines on, well, social media, I suppose. And the first story up to grab his attention was last night's on-post Irish Book Awards. Irish Book Awards season has officially uh, begun. It was launched last night in the um, title sponsors on Puss shiny new building, the EXO building, gleaming there on Silicon Docks next to the Point Theatre. It's good to stick a, some arts, people interested in the arts in the in the regions of finance and the gleaming towers of, of capital that uh, threaten so much of arts and creativity. Next door to Dublin Port, by the way, another uh, state-owned company which has been supporting the arts through theatre. Uh, but for our purpose, Purposes. The Irish, the On Post Irish Book Awards have begun. I went there myself last night. Uh, unusually for people who are into uh, creativity, most uh, most of the audience were actually chatting about the traffic in Dublin at the moment. Which, uh, and I know if you're listening from Cork, you're going, they're hardly complaining about traffic. We have worse problems to think of down here, uh, which we'll come to momentarily. Uh, but there seems to be apocalyptic um, um, traffic at the minute in Dublin. And there's a million and a half people. So that's all they're talking about around there. But more importantly to the news, it is a whopper year for the Irish novel, um, the, the longest or the most number of people who made it onto the Booker Prize long list. And we still have two authors in the short list. Uh, we won't find out till the end of November whether Paul Lynch um, with Prophet Song or uh, Paul Murray with the the Bee Sting is going to uh, win uh, the, the actual Booker Prize. I Actually, Paul Lynch, a friend of the show, Prophet Song, and I told him against his mammies, his Donegal mammy superstition, that he was going to make the shortlist, and he did. So I'm, I'm, taking, I'm taking ownership of that one. So, And I had a good chat with Paul Lynch, who I didn't know until last night. His uncle is Jerry Stembridge. You know, author and uh, playwright, but most importantly for, for my purposes, uh, the creator, uh, the co-creator behind Scrap Saturday himself and Dermot Morgan. And Paul Lynch said he was in RT as a young fella and was introduced to Dermot Morgan, who he didn't really know, you know, at the time because he was a child or whatever. But uh, good memories. And uh, so not, not a bad uncle to have if you're in the literary world, Jerry Stembridge. Uh, we're actually talking about those two great novels by Jerry Stembridge on Hawhey's Ear and there's supposed to be a third. So um, if you're if Jerry's around or anyone listening to him, give him a poke and, and let's get the third, the trilogy of the Hawhey era novels that are set around, around women, particularly their experiences there. Um, I only read one of them last year so it was uh, they're, they're really good novels look. anyway that's Paul Lynch's um, literary origins which we now judge him on of course but the Eason Novel of the Year nominees this year Old God's Time Sebastian Barry that was in the Booker longlist as well The Wren The Wren and Enright of, of Booker um, Booker fame as well previously How to Build a Boat Elaine Feeney also on the longlist there So Late in the Day Claire Keegan that's her follow up to the one that was on the Booker last year Soldier Sailor Claire Kilroy Prophet Song as I mentioned Paul Lynch The Beasting Paul Murray and My Father's House by Joseph O'Connor so eight 
major novels uh, for the novel of the year in that. And in the author of the year category, uh, more big names, Sebastian Barry's in there, Catherine Ryan Howard, who was in with us a few weeks ago, Claire Keegan as well, Liz Nugent and Joseph O'Connor and Linda Riley. Uh, so uh, they're the hot, they're the hot competition in those two categories. My involvement, I'm in the Irish book. I, I present the Irish book of the year award, the overall. So they take six winners from all the various categories. There's everything from sports and biographies and cookbooks and everything. They pick the six best kind of books, the most popular books of the year and uh, put them in the competition. And on the 6th of December, we'll be announcing the overall Irish book of the year award down along the docks again. There have been five non-fiction winners in a row. Uh, the recent ones being Vicky Phelan, then you would Finton O'Toole's um, non-fiction, kind of using his memorial as a biography of Ireland in ways. And then last year, The Fourth Time We Drowned, which is Sally Hayden's um, uh, story of, of the tragedy of, of immigration from North Africa and desperately trying to get to Europe and so on. So I'm rooting for the novel this year, though, of course, I have no input in the judging panel. Good luck to everyone and uh, long live the page. Uh... Yes, God save the page, indeed. Meanwhile, it hardly needs to be pointed out that Storm Babette has had its wicked way with southern counties, particularly Cork. Now, the Irish Examiner is reporting this morning uh, the reasons for, for various, for the floods, now that the, the waters have subsided, thankfully, and the yellow rain warning has now been switched off down there. Um, a mattress, a pink scooter, a baby's cot were some of the items that blocked a culvert and caused major flooding during heavy rainfall in Glanmire on Wednesday. That's Glanmire, where we were talking about SARS, um, as in Sarsfields uh, Hurling GA Club down there. And they opened quite literally the floodgates to uh, turn the pitch into a floodplain and saved a couple of houses there. Uh, but they're also pointing out that the Sorensen Civil Engineering Company, which was working on behalf of Cork City Council on flood relief scheme, would you believe? And there's a lot of people angry that those flood relief schemes are coming too late. But um, the quick thinking of Sorensen workers down there uh, when that culvert began to flood, because it's, it's packed with illegal dumping, um, the workers began to dam off the road and diverted the flooding and cleared the culvert and saved local homes from businesses and businesses for millions of euro. So locals were stopping anyone working with a Sorensen shirt or jacket on them, thanking them for saving the homes. At Landmire Chamber said, thank you to Sorensen Civil Engineering for saving the businesses of Hazelwood Shopping Centre. This is in Landmire. And in the Scout Hall down there, volunteers have been serving food and hot drinks donated from local families and businesses, including Supervalue, Aldi, uh, Subway, to name a few, but mo mostly local residents. So the Mehel is under is, is working away there. Sometimes we think it's gone, but it happens, it emerges at times like this. And the locals are cleaning up places like the uh, estates like Copper Valley View, um, locals filling skips with floorboards and bits of sofas. Everything is kind of ruined in houses. I mean, it's just desperate stuff. Um, some 20 homes they were clearing out. And uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is anger down there. Ashley McAvoy and her husband Dominic quoted here in the examiner said the council hadn't provided enough sandbags to protect the community. It was the locals that rallied to help. She said the Mums of Glanmire Facebook group has been incredible. They called me, asked what we needed. We had 20 people coming, helping to clean out the house and the scouts and Super Value dropped over the food. Um, someone else, Mary Pat Barrett, said it was a nightmare for her. One of my sons has additional needs. He broke down last night. It's going to cost thousands to fix our home. I don't know where we'll get the money. There's no flood insurance here. The humanitarian fund from the government is means tested. My husband had to take time off from work to try and clear the house. That is the stress and anxiety that people are going through down there. So God help them. Uh, but it is good to see people come to that. But it is, it is the locals. It's the locals that are doing a lot of the, a lot of the clean up. 
The scenes out of Cork were pretty gobsmacking, all right, it has to be said. And with the weather we're having, well, it might be best described as cinema weather. Now, it is movie weekend. So what are you excited about? Um, The big, big movie out this weekend is Killers of the Flower Moon, based on the fantastic book. If you, you're going to have loads, this film will be out for ages, so read the book if you can beforehand. And uh, what is the New York Times most gushing is, it's an unsettling masterpiece, is what they're saying. Three and a half hours long, we mentioned that earlier in the week, but I'm now thinking, yeah, if I can go in the, kind of around lunchtime, if you can find a weekend lunchtime, uh, kind of uh, make yourself really thirsty. Is it, don't drink any fluids in the run-up to it. Mind you, I disagreed with that said. There's always a film, a point in a long movie where you know you can go for the toilet break and you can go out and you're not going to miss anything. You know, they're going to sit around chatting about their feelings for a bit. Uh, but anyway, there's lots of action in this. But it is, of course, a true story. Very sad. It's all about, uh, you know, the Native Americans being cleared off their lands and the Osage County, the Osage Nation, uh, was being sent into um, it was Ohio they, they were they were heralded in it. Oklahoma sorry Oklahoma is where they went and uh, they happened to arrive on land that was underlain with priceless oil and so they had a huge boom they became extremely wealthy and it wasn't long before the vultures arrive and the vultures are in the shape in the movie of Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro sometimes on the nose there's a lot of kind of anti-maga stuff in it and I noticed in the trailer there was like we got to take um, you know make it great again sort of thing and I was saying ask Scorsese now He's 80 years of age, by the way, Scorsese, so never let it be said that age is a barrier to doing uh, great things because it is the age of people in their 80s. You've got um, um, Joe Biden in in his 80s. All the main players, by the way, in in the Arab-Israeli conflict at the moment are also in their 80s, all the senior people. So there there is life in it. And David Attenborough's new series on Sunday, he's 90 seven years of age. Uh, what else? Foe, of course, Foe movie. We had uh, your man on talking to us this week about Foe. That's the big Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal film that's coming out. Not great reviews, I must say. Irish Independent there. Even the dream casting of Ronan and Mescal can't rescue this dystopian drama. Uh, the London Independent. Why is a film about robot clones starring Paul Mescal so boring? I think they've just kind of marketed it away because it's not a science fiction film if you're up for a kind of... Um, Intense drama, romance drama. I think it could be that could be a decent a decent night out. Five Nights at Freddy's is going to be a huge film for anyone in your life, teenage up to about the age of twenty five. Uh, already, it's going to be they're saying here going to be the second best debut of a film uh, in uh, in autumn for years and years and years. It's already well ahead of some of the big things. It's a it's a horror movie and it's based on well, it's a nine year old franchise video game, Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, there's a troubling a troubled security guard who's your man from. The Hunger Games. I can't remember. He's a fella, you know, he's the main boy in the Hunger Games. Uh, and he begins working at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. American, obviously. First night on the job, he realises the night shift is not going to be quite as easy as it seems. And there's very creepy kind of cartoon characters, you know, rendered into giant um, um, glossy statues. And it's very, very, um, it's very, very good. This is kind of the taste of it. It'll gear you up for Halloween. Welcome to Freddy's. Have you met them yet? Met who? There you go. That's what your teenagers are going to see this weekend. The funny, scary movie you need to see this weekend, according to Oliver Callan. Five nights at Freddy's. And that's where we leave the musings from this morning's nine o'clock show. (laughs) 
According to research conducted by a team at the University of Galway, up to half a million people in Ireland are suffering from osteoporosis. This morning, Claire Byrne spoke about the condition with John Carey, Professor in Medicine at University of Galway and Consultant Physician at Galway University Hospitals. Osteoporosis for people in Ireland is a really big problem. We know about half a million people are there thereabouts have osteoporosis today, many of whom aren't aware they have it based on our best estimate and about another million people are at risk. And we know there's over 50,000 people have a fracture, that's a broken bone. And most of those are admitted to a hospital or have to see a doctor and have significant suffering, pain, etc. over the course of the year. And the fractures result in a lot of financial cost to the patients. They may not be able to work, they may have to pay for various things and significant financial cost to the exchequer and the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And we've shown recently in public hospital bed days after all the cuts came in in 2008, the actual bed days have increased almost 50% for fragility fractures and outnumber other diseases where there are national programmes such as cancer heart disease and diabetes mellitus. Okay, And John, can I just ask you exactly what osteoporosis is? Because we're very familiar with the word. We hear it a lot, but we mightn't be sure as to what exactly it means. Well, if I said to you, Claire, that there was a disease for a postmenopausal woman or a 50-year-old man that's more common than stroke, heart attack or cancer, or for a woman more common than your risk of stroke, heart attack, invasive breast cancer and deaths from cardiovascular disease each year. And if we had a disease that caused more deaths probably in the last few years than COVID did and we had treatment that's very effective, you'd want to do something about it. You certainly would. So we've got effective treatment that one, reduces the risk of fracture, two, improves people's lives and three, reduces mortality and is very cost effective for decades. Yes, today, unfortunately in Ireland, because we don't have a national programme, there isn't enough focus and attention. And so it's pretty clear that if we had more focus and attention without getting extra resources, we'd have focused resources and we would be able to test and manage people who are at risk for this disease before a fracture occurs. And is it only diagnosed once you've had a fracture? No. So there are two issues there, just to be clear. We use a DEXA test to make a diagnosis before somebody has a fracture. But once they have a fragility fracture, then we can make a diagnosis of osteoporosis without a DEXA test. A DEXA test at that point is for monitoring treatment and assessing your prognosis. But there's considerable confusion out there where people have had multiple fractures and they think they only have low bone density or osteopenia. But that, in scientific terms, is called a false negative test, i.e., you have the disease, but the test didn't show it. Mm. And you should be treated as though for the disease that you have, which is Absolutely. osteoporosis. Can you do anything to prevent yourself getting it? So there's lots of things we can do to prevent uh, fractures and possibly osteoporosis. Unfortunately, for people like you and me, Claire, by the time we're born, our genes have set the stall out for where we're going to end up. And about 70% of bone strength is genetic. But about 30% is accounted for then by lifestyle, healthy diet, weight-bearing exercise, not smoking, not drinking too much alcohol, possibly avoiding certain medications or switching certain medications. And if you have other diseases that can cause bone loss, such as rheumatoid arthritis or celiac disease, managing those well and talking to your doctors, your nurses and your health professionals to make sure they're well controlled. If we do all that, and there's numerous studies shown that you can not alone prevent further bone loss, but you can actually reverse it in many cases. And I think the obvious ones, the the smoking, the drinking and the exercise, but the medications you mentioned, can you tell me more about that? 
So common medications that are widely prescribed that can cause more rapid bone loss would be things like corticosteroids. They're used for things like asthma, they're used for arthritis and a, a host of other conditions. So while they can be life-saving for an acute life-threatening event, long-term they have very significant side effects, chief among them which is bone loss and fracture. There are hormonal therapies for cancer and a variety of other medications that can cause bone loss or calcium loss. But there are but there are treatments for osteoporosis on the positive side of this, John. Absolutely, for, for sure. So the idea is that if people are aware of it and they're thinking about it, the patients, their families and their doctors, they can get in early and they're very effective medications that can prevent bone loss and they're very safe medications and they work very well. So, and what you're calling for uh, today is a national strategy to deal with this. What would that look like? So what it would look like, it would be multi-pronged because osteoporosis is something that doesn't fit nice and neatly into one particular medical specialty. It's multi-specialty, it's primary care, rheumatology, orthopaedics, endocrinology. And that would coordinate all the efforts together to do two things. One, for primary prevention, to educate the public, to start with kids in school, to get them to have healthier diets, to eat healthier, to exercise regularly. Because by the time you're 20, you're going to have your maximum bone and that's your bone bank for life. So many people would argue it's a paediatric disease. The second thing is it would educate adults so they don't take up risky behaviours or they make appropriate adjustments to prevent bone loss and get tested then when it's appropriate to do so. A big problem we're seeing in Ireland is a lot of younger, healthier people are getting a DEXA scan and shouldn't be and they're taking calcium and vitamin D and other things that don't work and actually have been shown to increase the risk of fracture. So overdiagnosis is a big problem in Ireland. On the other hand, when we get to the other extreme, we see lots of people who have fractures and the majority of them are not diagnosed or treated for their osteoporosis after their fracture. But they're the people who clearly benefit from getting tested and getting treated and the treatment is very effective for those people. So when it comes to the DEXA test, who should be having that that, uh, test done? So the DEXA test is something that would be recommended for people who have a fracture, as I say, to monitor treatment and assess their prognosis because if they've low bone density and a fracture, they need more aggressive treatment than if they have normal bone density and a fracture. The second thing is there'd be people who are clearly at risk for osteoporosis, such as people on steroids, perhaps people with a family history of fractures or osteoporosis and other diseases. And most doctors and nurses would be familiar with that. The interesting group where we've done a lot of our more recent research is the healthy population. These are people who don't smoke, who aren't on steroids, who don't have other risk factors. And we know a lot of those people don't need to get a DEXA scan because they're young, fit and healthy. So if you look at international guidelines, most of the guidelines are based around age. So they recommend screening, which is testing people without signs or symptoms of a disease. All postmenopausal women aged 65 and older and men aged 70 or 75 and older. We know if you add another factor such as weight, you can reduce the number of people needed to screen. So you get better value for money in simple terms. Okay. We've come up with a very good screening tool that can better identify people who'd benefit from giving a DEXA. John Carey, Professor in Medicine at University of Galway, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about osteoporosis in Ireland. Ray Darcy covered the important breaking news this afternoon that Lion's Tea are discontinuing their pyramid-shaped tea bags and reverting to square ones. What could this startling development mean for tea drinkers everywhere? Ray was asking the hard questions this afternoon. 
Does the shape of a tea bag make a huge difference? Well, we got on to the head of the Department of Chemical Engineering in Lockbury University in the UK, who's done a study on how to make the perfect cup of tea, and he joins me now on the line. Good afternoon, Dr. Andy Stapley. Good afternoon. Good to talk to you. The science of tea, very important. Yeah, um, I sort of dabbled in this a, a few years ago, sort of came up um, with a sort of um, official perfect cup of tea formula. It was in honour of sort of George Orwell, who'd written this article in way back in 1948 on, on how he thought a perfect cup of tea should be made. And we sort of updated it for, for sort of modern times, as it were. Yeah. Uh, Andy, obviously in that perfect cup of tea, you use loose tea leaves but can we talk briefly before we get to that about the tea bag and the shape of the tea bag and does it make a difference the lion's tea here in ireland made a big hoo-ha about introducing the pyramid shaped tea bag and now they're reverting to a square one um from your research does it make a difference i mean the key thing about tea bags is that even just a humble tea bag in itself is almost an amazing invention because it is effectively its main function is as, as a filter to stop the tea leaves actually sort of escaping from the tea bag and into the cup of tea. Mm. I mean, it does this much better than a sort of conventional tea strainer, where you know um, it tends to be much larger holes, and certainly the smaller tea leaves can get through those holes. And what it does do is that with the tea bag, because the holes are so small, you can actually get away with a lot smaller particle size so that you can grind your tea leaves in down to quite small size which means that the actual infusion of the tea is much faster because the, the whole kind of diffusion process it doesn't have quite as far to go to the tea compounds to move from the leaf into the liquid. I understand that so the pyramid versus the square what do you think? Um, it might make a difference around the edges, possibly. But, I mean, the key thing is that um, if you just put a spoon in and mash the thing around a bit and stir it around, and that has by far bigger effect on the actual infusion than just whether it's the shape of the tea bag. If you put a, t- a pyramid tea bag in without stirring it, it's going to be worse than having a square one Whispering, if you see what I mean. I do. Um, I understand completely. And they've obviously done research on this, as you have, into the perfect cup of tea. Dr. Stapley's scientifically tested guide for a perfect cup of tea, 11 steps. We're not going through them all individually, Andy. Uh, but there are a couple of things that struck me there from 6 to 11. So the temperature of the water is hugely important? Yes, it's really got to be as close to 100 degrees as physically possible because even the difference between 90 and 100 makes a difference not in just the rate at which it comes out but what comes out as well yeah Uh, it's different to coffee if you have coffee you don't want to have it too hot you know if you have 100 degrees centigrade with hot coffee it's actually too hot for the coffee but with tea the hotter definitely the the better better. now you say leave to brew for three minutes and here's the controversial bit and i think when you released this research uh, a few years ago people here in ireland were saying english university professor says that we're making tea wrongly in that we usually here pour the tea into the mug or the cup or whatever and then add milk and you're saying that's not the way to do it yeah i mean uh, again it's sort of around tripping around the edges i mean it was talking about you know the perfect cup of tea but uh, the whole thing about putting the milk in first or the milk in second used to be a much bigger deal over 60 years ago when people didn't have refrigerated milk Mm-hmm. I mean, fridges, I think, came in in the 60s, really. You know, most people before the 1960s didn't have a fridge. So, 
milk tended to be delivered every day to your doorstep and you would just be having room temperature milk all the time to add to your tea and then I think it did make a difference if you're more likely to get to the point which is around about 70 degrees where the milk starts to denature and it would be a bit more likely to happen if you put the tea in second than if you put the tea in in first just because when you put the milk in second it doesn't mix very well whereas if you put the tea in second because there's a lot more of it sort of coming into the cup it mixes very quickly uh-huh. and so but these days it's really quite marginal because it's from a refrigerator what you do notice is the kind of effect we're talking about is if you were to put the milk in while the tea bag is still in the, the cup yep, yes so, so if you're making your tea and you put your tea bag in and you pour the water on it and then immediately you put the milk in on top of that then the tea hasn't actually had any time to cool down. Yes, yes, yes. And you do notice a a very different taste if you make tea like that. Okay. You would advise against that, Andy? Absolutely. I mean, that's an abomination to, to tea making. I mean, there may be people out there where if you do it like that, that's actually how they like it just because that's the flavour they prefer. But I think to most people, it it gives you a bit of a funny flavour. Okay. And finally, then, if you have a thermometer and you've added your milk, uh, you should drink your tea between 60 and 65 degrees centigrade. That's step 11 of Dr. Stapley's scientifically tested guide to a perfect cup of tea. Dr. Andrew Stapley talking the science of tea on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Adrian Morris is a dairy farmer from Cootill in County Cavan. He's also the man behind the hit YouTube channel I Farm We Farm with close to 100,000 followers. Adrian spoke to fellow Cavan native Oliver Callan this morning. Are you filming this morning, moving cattle? I'm always, always carrying a camera. I'm actually charging the Are camera you? here as we speak. It, it goes everywhere with me. It's part of my, it's my buddy now. It's part of my life, so um, bringing it with you. Just, you know, if you, if you leave it behind, well, you have your phone as well, of course. Yeah. But if you if you leave it behind, you, you miss some of the important shots that you take during your week's work. So, uh, yeah, it comes with me everywhere. I'd say this farmer's already listening, going, how is this, this fellow now must have helpers or something. How is he filming and, and doing the farm? And this can't be, this can't be real. Um, it, it, it's full-time commitment. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. And, and it, there's a learning curve behind it. But uh, as I say, you just have to get on with it and you just have to know, you know, you have to bring the camera with you and as part of your life to show what you're doing in your day-to-day routines and your lifestyle, of course, you know, to have the camera with you is important. You can't be picking out different clips of what's happening during the day. You need to have it there when the important things or the funny clips come, you know. The yeah. camera's there, it's ready to go, and that's how you capture the, the proper moments. It's obviously something you love as much as farming. Um, I love and hate it. <laughs> it all depends. <laughs> also farming. Some days, some mornings you wake up with one eye closed and the hair standing on you and... <laughs> You, you, don't, you don't want to even look at yourself, never mind looking into a camera, but no, no, it's, it is enjoyable. Once um, you get your week over and you sit down maybe on a Thursday night or on a Friday night and you edit out your video and you put it all together and you look at it yourself before it goes up on YouTube and you say, you say to yourself, what, I actually got a lot done this week. And, um, you know, it, it, it gives you kind of a sense of completion. 
Um, if that makes if that makes any kind of sense. No, but, it does um, totally. And the accomplishments yeah. of it. I farm, we farm. You have a hundred thousand subscribers, so they're the people who get the alert when you put the the video up and uh, are devoted yeah. to it. Um, what kind of stuff have you filmed as a farmer that has really worked and built the channel to that to, uh, to, to that stage? Well, I started the channel. It was my wife's idea, Sinead. Um, she put it into my head. We were building a new cattle shed on a greenfield site, so a brand new site on a on a, on a way farm. And she said, why don't you document it? Um, I had no real interest in doing that. I wasn't on social media. No real interest in that at all. But I always had cameras and I always made little videos I used at home. My own, just my own personal use. Yeah. Um, but I did document it. I put a video up on YouTube then. It was very bog standard, very basic. Um, it got a couple of hundred views and then that went up to a couple of thousand views. And I followed up the following month with another next stage clip. That got a couple of thousand views and then it started to build. So the more that went on, we ended up going into a Sunday slot, which we have now this past three and a half years where we haven't really missed a Sunday. And we're filming everything from your life growing up on a farm, raising kids on a farm. And also I do a lot of mechanical work. So I do a lot of the work myself rather than getting people in. So hands on, welding, grinding, you name it, we, we, we tackle into it. Hard stuff to film, um, but very interesting when you see the feedback you get from people. It's 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 worth doing. So it's worth putting the time into it. It is. I mean, we've had farming programs and stuff on the telly down the years, but there's just something uh, a little bit more authentic about when you're doing it yourself, and you're yes. getting along with your day's work, isn't there? And it's it was a closed world in many ways. There were people in the outside world wouldn't really know what the day to day grind. Of course, um, we we look. We go by a lot of the feedback we get, so you get messages that stick out in your head. So, for instance, if we done a video on a day in our life, so what we were doing from morning getting up till we finished and come in to go to bed that night, everything from the alarm clock going off um, in the morning to get into bed that night. So um, that video accomplished about a million views. And uh, once we've seen that, we say, well, OK, there's, there's an audience for this. So um, some of the feedback, one particular one that sticks out in my head was a guy in Ballyfermot, Dublin. Yeah, and he had no farming experience at all but he wrote a message just saying that he went down to his local shop this morning he bought a pint of milk or a litre of milk and he said for the first time ever I took it off the shelf and I could see or just knew I could picture in my head of you in milking your cows that morning I knew what was put into getting that litre of milk onto that shelf he said and I had a whole sense of you know it, it, I had more respect for it more respect yeah. when I brought it home and knew where it came from. And beforehand, I never thought of that. I just picked up the shelf, paid for it and took it home. So you get lots of messages like that and it just gives you a wee bit more connection rather than what you might read or whatever in short term. When you show something in the long term where you're putting your whole life into it and it's going over a few years, people get a better understanding of how things are run. People suddenly understand the story behind yeah. things they take for yeah. granted. Uh, yeah. That's the key. What are, what are the things have done really well? Um, well, we, we actually started renovating a cottage on yeah. our farm. So we, we bought a little small parcel of land and it was this old cottage in the middle of it. It was all completely grown in and I had never set foot on it myself and it was on my doorstep, but you couldn't get into it. It was so overgrown. So we started clearing it. I cleared it myself. It's 40 years hidden away, from, wasn't it? Just completely 40 years covered. hidden away. <laughs> yeah. As I'm looking at the video here, it's got a quarter of a million views. This is the first one. This is the first stage. Yeah. And it is literally like... Uh, you wouldn't think there was a house in there. You wouldn't think there was anything in there, no. And people loved that. Uh, that was completely different than the farming content that we normally had. 
Yeah. And I know you I went to full Dermot original. Bannon. <laughs> oh, I didn't. No, I haven't rung Dermot yet. No, okay. I must get on to him. <laughs> but um, no, uh, it, it, that just gathered a serious following. Um, so we made a couple of videos on it where we cleared it all up, mm-hmm. refreshed the whole site, and there was lots of, of content in that and interest, and it was very fun to make. And that's, is that um, still going on, by the way? Because uh, you've got 750,000 yeah. views. That's a year now. So you need to update us on how the I need to update it. Yeah, people cottage. imagine, people imagine um, next week you should have it built. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, okay. It is. It's a slow. The reality of it is it's not um, like a documented film or a program on TV that's filmed over a year and then it's all put together yeah. in one show. Here, it's it's real life. So you're up to date on the, on the latest video. So it, it takes time. But we are... Um, we are doing other stuff in between. We're re- renovating or restoring some old machinery. So an old Ferguson T20 that my father would have uh, first started out farming in the 50s on, on this farm. So we ended up buying one that was pretty much identical to the one he had. And we're restoring it now with my kids. Um, just gradually doing it up. So it's a bit of history to keep on the farm. Uh, it's something yeah. to pass on to my own children and show them you know, what was, without the modern equipment we have nowadays, what was used back then. Um, so and tractors you, are a big business on, on YouTube, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, well, you're all the same trying to think of, of, of ways that connects people to countryside life. Mm. Uh, and sometimes the old stuff is the best stuff. Um, and still, um, for instance, another message, um, and, and again, you go by the feedback, was um, a guy in Kerry that messaged us and said, I've seen um, you had a shovel in your hand today. You were cleaning the drain with a shovel. <laughs> My father was watching it at 85 years old. And he said it was great to see a younger person take a shovel in their hand rather than using the modern equipment we have and using that because he spent his whole life doing that. And um, he said just appreciation to see that it's still, in the odd places, still happens. That's wild. Not often, but... (laughs) The connection, yeah, he really spotted the connection. Uh, So is the YouTubing, is this a job now or is it a hobby still? uh, It started off, you have to kind of still treat it as a hobby. You have to enjoy it. Mm. Um, if you don't enjoy it or if you start treating it as, as a, something you must do rather than you want to do then I find it comes across different on your on your channel itself your personality might change or it's just it's just to me it's about keeping it the same as when you started um, so yeah it is a job mm. it's as in a way a lot of work um, it's a huge amount of work to get a video ready for a Sunday because you're filming every day you could have six to seven hours of footage that you'll narrow down to about 20 minutes. Uh, so the editing alone starts about 8 o'clock at night. Um, normally I do it on a Thursday or a Friday night. And you can start at 8 o'clock and finish about 12, 1 a.m. before you get the, the video just right. The music and bits and pieces into it. But when you're finished, it's, it's usually worth it. Adrian Morris there, the farmer behind the hit YouTube channel I Farm, We Farm, talking to Oliver Callan this morning. The weight loss drug Ozempic has proven remarkably popular and its scarcity has led to fake versions of it appearing online. County Clare-based GP Dr Yvonne Williams spoke to Clare Byrne this morning about the dangers of these fake versions. We've heard a lot about Ozempic over the last few months, haven't we? But maybe it might be worthwhile just reminding us what it's for. 
So Ozempic is a drug that's licensed for people with type 2 diabetes that isn't isn't controlled with our, our usual regime of diet, exercise and other medication. Um, but it's used off license quite a lot for people who are struggling with obesity and who, who can't get control of their, their weight um, using diet and exercise. So we have thousands of people in Ireland who are using it for, for weight loss uh, for medical reasons as well as for diabetes. And there's been a shortage worldwide in the last year or so. And we've had warnings about a current shortage at the moment, actually, the end of September, early October, there are certain doses that pharmacists have been telling patients are going to be out of stock or difficult to get. So that's why people have resorted to trying to find it online, sometimes legitimately and other times illegitimately. Absolutely. So there's been a huge surge in the demand for it at the same time as we've had a huge surge worldwide, I suppose, in diabetes and obesity and while it's not legal in Ireland to get your prescriptions, um, to get your medicine online, you can get prescriptions using online services. But people are desperate to lose weight and sometimes people have tried everything else. And, the, you know, these medicines are quite expensive. So there is, a, I suppose, a black market for it. And there is um, a huge demand that just isn't isn't being met by the pharmaceutical companies uh, for the doses that are used for Ozempic at the moment. Now, the black market is one thing, because if you are ordering your, your pen online from an illegitimate source, you might just just be aware of, of that. This, what we're talking about today, though, the warning from the European Medicines Agency is different, isn't it? It is. It's from wholesalers. And these are these fakes are, are really, really, really good looking fakes. You know, they have real serial numbers. Um, it's, it's great they've been picked up. And as far as we know, there aren't any circulating in Ireland, but they're um, they're very, very convincing. Because people might feel that they're ordering um, Ozempic from a legitimate source and they're paying what they believe they should be paying, but they're not getting Ozempic. Absolutely. And I'm sure pharmacists and other, you know, smaller suppliers down the chain would order in good faith from from a wholesaler. So obviously, you know, the, the European Medicines Agency and the, the Irish equivalent will be keeping a really close eye on, on the brands of Ozempic and what's coming through into, into the markets. So if somebody's trying to get their hands on Ozempic in, and they're looking for it online, Yvonne, what do you say to them? Well, I suppose just to remind people that it, that it isn't legal to buy medicines on online, you know, regardless whether it's Ozempic or something else, you can get an online prescription through one of the online, you know, medical clinics. Um, but to actually get the drug online is, isn't legal here. So to go to your regular pharmacy um, to check carefully that, you know, it, it looks like what it, it says on the box. And I think the pharmacists and GPs are going to be, you know, all very well aware of this now. It's been flagged in, in the States and around Europe in the last 24 hours. So everyone is, is going to be upping their game. Are you being asked of checking. For, for these types? of drugs, Ozempic, Saxenda, Wegovy, are you being asked a lot about them? We're being asked a lot for Saxenda and Ozempic. I suppose Ozempic is more effective and it's cheaper than Saxenda, but in Ireland it's the Saxenda that is reimbursable for people. Um, there's quite strict criteria for it, but there is a demand for it. And I suppose the other issue we have is that Ozempic, you know, there's a supply issue for Ozempic and the higher dose at the moment, but the HSE don't reimburse, you know, two, two lower doses to make up the equivalent. So people who are on a, a milligram of Ozempic, if that's out of supply, we can't give them two, two 0.5s um, just through the normal scheme. So that, that creates a own problem. People who are losing weight and doing really well on Ozempic, you know, you can understand that they don't want to stop. They're, they're terrified of putting all the weight back on again. So that's why I suppose there is that, that fear among people that they're, they're going to run out of their, their regular stock of Ozempic. Yeah, but as the EMA is telling us today, you need to be careful where you're getting it from and make sure that uh, what you're getting, even, even if it's on prescription, is uh, what it should be. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think the, the Drugs Medicine Authority in Ireland are, are really good at monitoring what, what comes into the country and all the pharmacists have been made aware of this. So everyone's going to be on, on high alert to check.
Dr. Yvonne Williams talking to Claire Byrne about the spread of fake versions of weight loss drug Ozempic online. On Liveline this afternoon, Katie Hannon was still on a high from Tuesday's surprise chat with Dolly Parton. We got such a buzz this week out of having Dolly Parton on the live line. And yes, that's fantastic. <laughs> you were on your way to Nashville, Roger. I am indeed, I am indeed. On the 31st, I'm heading over on Tuesday. Is it Tuesday the 31st until uh, November the 12th? And are you a big, you're obviously a big country fan, are you? Oh, God, I, I am. I've been, it's been my, my, my passion for many, many years now, Katie. Many years, girl. I love it, yeah. How did well, you... I, I, I like lots of other music as well. I like jazz and I like uh, I like the, the, the Irish lads and the country music end of it. But uh, traditional country really uh, was what I was reared on, and that's what that's what I love. And so you must you must have nearly fallen off your chair when you heard Dolly this week, did you? Oh, I thought she was lovely. She's she's a marvelous woman, and she for PR and uh, and and the work she has done across as well. You know this this. Lending this library that she has initiated there for young kids, young school kids, is amazing. Yeah, she's, she's fantastic. She, she believes in spreading her wealth around. I'd say, in fairness, so. she is uh, really is a class act. Uh, you've been yeah. to Dollywood yourself, Roger. I have, yeah, I have, yeah. It's it's about it's a nice little trip now out of Nashville, but you know everybody wants to go there, and you, it's in the Smoky Mountains anyway. And you have another beautiful place alongside it called Gatlinburg. I have, I have friends there and I go up and stay there with them. So that's only a hop, a jump and a step from uh, to Dollywood from there. And again, again like, b- b- describe Dollywood to me because I'm kind of trying to get my head around the idea of a Dollywood, theme park no, built around Dolly. It has changed a fair bit now since I was there. And the the time I was there now, they had lots of uh, little theatres there where artists performed. You had, of course, you had a, a, a full size steam engine circling the whole the whole area there that you can hop on. It's all part of your admittance fee, you know. Then she has a theatre there as well. And one of the times we were there, we were very lucky because she was actually doing a photo shoot for an album cover. Mm-hmm. So she did a sort of a meet and greet inside in the theatre. And it was open house to everybody. So we got in. And did and you so meet her? Was, uh, I did, yeah. Uh, she was fantastic. She she has a house there, but of course she doesn't live there. Yeah. But, uh, nobody knows where she is half the time. Like she has houses out there all over the states, you know. But uh, but you, you know, did I, actually I met, I met you did. In, I did, yeah. I did, and uh, um, I didn't actually meet her. You know, she came to Cork, and as part of the uh, live at the Marquee. She performed here in Cork, and as it so yeah. happened, when was that again? Because a number of oh, people said that, to me that uh, it has to be ten years. Yeah, ago, that they uh, saw her there. Yeah, that was a yeah. fantastic concert. But the strange thing about it was, um, you know, the marquees like you have a centre pole holding up the marquee, so there's always a little bit of uh, exposure there. And didn't it rain? And she came out to do her act, and the next thing she felt the drops of rain on top of her, but she, like she passed it off. She said the Lord was, was sending blessings down on us. So she, she was, she just moved aside and passed it off. So she, you know, she took it in her stride as she always does. Yeah, that was nine years ago. I'm told. Yeah, nine no, years I, ago. Well, she was we're, in not, court, we're yeah. not too far out. Yeah, not too far out. Yeah. Uh, but she made she made it through anyway. The week didn't get too wet. No, no, not at all. No, she just stepped back a wee bit. There wasn't a whole lot of water coming down anyway. Um, but, um, and what got you into country music, Roger? 
country music. I'd say probably um, I always quote a neighbour of mine who had uh, some Hank Williams LPs in the old days and the yellow label they called them which are very rare and he used to have the front door open and the windows open and the volume up to 10 and every time I passed the house I heard this this the strains of your cheating heart and all that stuff you know from uh, Hank Williams I was of course I was I always described myself as um, a teenager of the 50s, Katie. So I was reared on rock and roll, really. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, Elvis and Bill Haley and Chuck Berry and all that crack. That was that was my upbringing originally. And then when that, that started to fade, and of course we had the show bands that came in. But from there on, then I graduated to country and that's been my music since. And as it happens, Dolly's going the opposite direction because she's got the new rock album now, out now. She's going from country oh, to rock. Yeah, but she's, you know, it wouldn't be our first time venturing into rock or modern music, Luna. Uh, what the columns, um, she, she, when she moved, she moved to an agency in New York there at one stage, and uh, she, she recorded uh, about three pop albums. Mm-hmm. And then, because, uh, when, when, uh, the strange thing is then she turned full circle and she came home and she recorded four bluegrass albums which was her original music and where she was real, you know. That yeah. was the music they played in, in her younger days. So because, uh, fair enough to her, didn't she? Uh, Little Sparrow was one of them now. And, and uh, I forget what the rest of you, but you have both four bluegrass albums. Fabulous stuff altogether. Yeah, fabulous. bluegrass is fabulous. Absolutely yeah. uh, fabulous music. Yeah, because to me, it's the only true uh, country, the only true music that's left, you know country has changed so much now you wouldn't recognise it with all the modern artists you know Yeah would you have an issue now with that because there's so much crossover and uh, you know the the, yeah. tr- the tradition has changed so much I wouldn't uh, Katie in so far as the music would have died otherwise you see the CMA was formed back in 1959 and it was the only we say organisation dedicated to a particular genre of music this is this country, the, the country music awards you mean the country, country music, music association, association yeah. I should say yeah. that was 1959 and like they, they obviously they were far seeing enough to realise that once this generation dies out like that the music is going to die so you know they, they kind of they, they brought it uptown a little but of course a lot of it started uh, earlier than that as well with Chet Atkins and, and the A team in Nashville when they call, you know, when they when they when they introduced strings and all that to, to traditional artists, and they they switched over, likes of Ray Price and all those fellas. Now they had big hits, like, but they added strings to the to the traditional, uh, we'll say, steel and fiddle, and then the steel and fiddle show were, were dropped practically mm-hmm. from a lot of the modern stuff. But other than that, you see, Katie, I don't think, I mean, how many of my generation are still around to listen to Hank Williams and that kind of stuff, you know? Existential questions posed by hardcore country music fan Roger during his conversation with Katie Hannan on this afternoon's Liveline prior to Roger's departure for Nashville. In a twist I definitely did not see coming, a survey suggests that the majority of kids and teens think that they spend too much time online. Alex Cooney, CEO of CyberSafe Kids, joined Claire Byrne this morning to try to make some sense of this startling revelation. Do you think this is good news or bad news that the children have a self-awareness around their screen use? 
I think that's good news. I think that's really important, actually, that children are asked the question, they're asked to think about this. Because I think if we're honest, most of us would answer that. Um, so I, it's really helpful to see that kids are also thinking along those lines. Mm-hmm. And the apps that they're using, the, the gaming apps in particular and the social media apps, I mean, they're designed to keep them watching and keep their eyes on the screen. Right. It's a, it's about a, a attention economy, right? So it's all about that engagement. It's keeping those eyes on the screen. And they're using... Very very sophisticated uh, techniques to do so, particularly apps like, you know, TikTok and, and so on, because the way they're, they're really looking at what, even if you pause on some content, that will determine then what other content you see. And um, some of those apps that you mentioned, you mentioned TikTok there, they, they have put in some safeguards now, haven't they? Reminding yeah. you that you've been on here for quite some time and it might be time to take a break. Yeah, so they have started to introduce, as you say, TikTok particularly, they've introduced this one where this new um, feature that allows you to, to or no, lets you know that you've been on for 100 minutes. So, and then encourages you to switch off. I mean, you can override it, but it is good to have these reminders that we do need breaks. Now, you have looked at the gender breakdown in your responses and by the way there were 5,000 respondents than, involved yeah. involved in this so it's a, it's a good um, survey but when it comes to secondary school girls they experience more negative feelings when they spend time online compared to boys. So what's going on there? So girls are more likely to be using social media. Uh, Boys are more likely to be gaming. And we do start to see these differences at secondary school level rather than primary school level because we're looking at 8 to 16 overall. And unfortunately, girls do seem to be viewing their time online more negatively than boys. And there are feelings of jealousy, for example, feelings of being left out, uh, of anxiety, Uh, inadequacy. And it is, it's really concerning. I think with social media in particular, they're looking at other people's lives, looking at other people's bodies and faces and, you know, comparing. There's this constant comparison and not feeling like you're coming up Mm -hmm. good enough, you know. So the boys from 8 to 16, is that entire group spending more time gaming than on social media? Right the way through. Yeah, gaming is generally more popular with boys all the way through. And the younger girls, what are they doing online? More of a mix. They're actually more likely to be gaming. um, But boys, it's still stronger. The difference is still stronger, even at primary school level. And the the types of games they're playing would be, you know, do vary um, more. I mean, boys more more likely, obviously, to be playing things like FIFA. Uh, There'd be more crossover on things like Minecraft and and Roblox. But yeah, as they get to their teens, uh, girls are less likely to be gaming. Mm -hmm. And you know when they say to you I need to look up something on YouTube because I need to learn how to do this for my homework I need to do some research are they actually doing that? No they're not (laughs) and I have this as a parent Uh, YouTube is is the shorts they've introduced these shorts so a lot of the they're all sort of competing with one another right so TikTok had tremendous success with the short video format and as a consequence other companies have also introduced so YouTube, Instagram so we're all looking at these shorts and I think adults find it hard to switch off as well it's not just kids we're high highlighting children here uh, because obviously it's it's probably a bit more concerning when we think about their time but I know that adults also struggle to switch off and and you know that's because it's all designed to be addictive. Well you want us to switch off now for 24 hours this weekend that's all screens and devices not including television is that right? Yeah it's 24 hours so and I know this strikes fear in the heart of so many probably even your listeners thinking no I I, I, no I 
I quite freely admit I can't do that. <laughs> I can't. I couldn't do that. I couldn't not look at my phone for twenty four hours. There's no you way. You could. You could. I'm going to do it. And I did. I've been, we've been doing it for four years. And I will admit the first year was really really difficult. And at ten to five, the first day, the first year, my kids who were younger then were literally waiting because I was trying to send out that last tweet to say I'm now switching off. You know, see you in twenty four hours. And the kids were wrestling the phone out of my hands, saying, "You promised. You promised you were going to not yeah. look at this." So it is challenging. But the hardest bit is honestly the five o'clock bit. And then once you've kind of made that commitment, it's quite enjoyable. Mm. Honestly, well, try what if, it. What if, well, in my business, <laughs> what if something happens news-wise? I'd need to know about that. But also what if somebody urgently needed to get in touch with you? That doesn't wash, I can tell by your face. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really, because there are there are ways. Like, well, what made me laugh one year is my husband, like I had about seven missed calls from my husband. We were doing different things on the day and I was like, I'm on a cyber break and you're supposed to be on a cyber break. <laughs> but forgot. we do, there are little caveats. So if you go to our website and there's loads of activities and we've had great input from people like Richard Hogan, Lily Higgins has given us some lovely recipe ideas. There's lots of activity ideas, but there's also some small print. And it does say we do recognise for working parents, it can be really tricky. That's why we're starting at 5pm, just to try and make it a bit easier for them. If a parent had to take an urgent work call or something like that, obviously, you know, they can mm-hmm. do that. But it's really the idea is to try and stay away from social media, from gaming. You know, if you want to watch fam- uh, a film together as a family, that we, you know, we totally encourage that. It's about that together time as a family. TV was the bad guy in my day. Now it's the last resort of the happy family. That's if I'm hearing that right. That was Alex Cooney, CEO of CyberSafe Kids, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the time kids spend online. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, Jack L performed Butterfly of San Francisco from his last album. Here I stand where I was born, cocoon where all the memories form, it means nothing if you ain't here. set to make a move we all got something we need to prove to ourselves the world calls and we go so open up your wings butterfly of San Francisco Can't sit still Red flowers on Your windowsill Just say Spring is on her way So open up your wings Butterfly of San Francisco I fell down so Gotta reach up to touch the bottom Fell down so low Got no lows left to go Open up your wings Open up your wings Yeah 
I'm pumping juice to pay the way to the weekends when I know we'll talk and I'll be there in spirit butterfly of San Francisco fell down so Gotta reach up to touch the bottom Feel down so low hey. Got no lows left to go Fly of San Francisco Open up your wings Open up your wings Open up your wings Mighty Jack Lukeman performing Butterfly of San Francisco on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Jack is performing at the Puka Festival on Friday the 27th of October. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. And I'll be back with another edition of Playback Daily on Monday. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck.